All right, so this is part two of a three-part sermon about a sermon. Uh, and admittedly, part one was a little strange. The Holy Spirit had just been poured out on the apostles, leading to a bizarre miracle that undoes the curse of Babel. So now different tongues don't separate people who worship themselves. Instead, different tongues draw people together to worship God. There's wind, there's fire, and there's everybody's favorite Greek word to pronounce, glossolalia. <laughs> that means speaking in tongues. But at the heart of the scene, there's the presence of God being poured out on all the people, just as Jesus had promised. And all of this strangeness, all these signs and wonders and miracles, they create quite a stir. People notice what's going on, and people start to ask questions about the bizarre scene. Verse 12 of Acts 2 has the crowd wondering aloud, what could this mean? What's all this about? What's going on here? They knew it was more than just an, a group of overly excited men who left the window open and a stiff breeze blew in. They knew it was something more than that. They, they know signs and wonders when they see them. But what they cannot see is the meaning of these signs and wonders before them. And that's when Peter steps up. He steps up to offer the first gospel sermon, a proclamation about Jesus the Christ and a defense of their faith in him. The fancy Greek word for this proclamation is, is kerygma. Kerygma, which we discussed last week. The kerygma is the core message that the Spirit-filled apostles brought to the world, and we met the kerygma for the first time last week uh, here in Acts 2. But strangely enough, Peter begins the first kerygma sermon by dipping into the prophet Joel. Joel spoke of the coming end days, a time when the Spirit would be poured out on all people, regardless of gender. Peter quotes Joel as saying it, it's for sons and daughters alike, men and women, both. And regardless of age, that young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. So it's a very inclusive statement. Gender doesn't matter, age doesn't matter, his Spirit is poured out on all. But it is a terrible and a fearful day, with the sun going dark and the moon turning blood red. A day of prophecy, dreams, and visions. A day of blood and fire and smoke and clouds. A day of judgment, for sure, but also a day of salvation. For in these end days, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, according to Joel and according to Peter in Acts 2.21. And so, as Peter stands before the baffled crowd, he begins this great sermon by drawing attention to the thing that all Jews have been waiting for, the last days, the day of the Lord. But why? Why highlight all these awe-filled and glorious things? Why speak of that terrible day now, in the safety of the temple, during the celebration of Pentecost, surrounded by gibberish from all corners of the known world? It's a pretty safe environment. So why is he talking about the day of the Lord? Nothing about the scene looks like the day of the Lord at the moment. It doesn't look like the end days. So why does Peter begin with the end? Because those days represent something. In fact, they represent someone. Through the confusion and the fear and the wondrous miracles comes glory. Glory planned long ago, even before Joel. Glory that lived and loved. Glory that died and conquered death. Glory that was broken and exalted and now reigns supreme. And that glory has a name. It has dual titles. And as we journey with Peter through parts one and two of the Kerygma, we'll see the glory of the end days represented in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, whose titles are Lord and Messiah. So let's read Acts 2, 22 to 36 and unpack Peter's argument 
about this man named Jesus. People of Israel, listen. And I would add, people of Clyde Christian Bible Church, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you all know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers and sisters, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand, until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. So, just real quick, do we see the first two elements of the kerygma at play in Peter's sermon? Have a look at these first two elements. A historical proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, set forth as the fulfillment of prophecy and involving humanity's responsibility. That's a mouthful, I know, but did we see this here? Yes, absolutely we saw this. The kerygma is being birthed before our eyes. Does Peter discuss the historical nature of Jesus' time on earth? Yes. He speaks of God endorsing Jesus, which he did in the same manner as Pentecost. During Jesus' baptism, God poured out his spirit on his son. That was an actual event that actually happened. Peter repeatedly speaks of the crowd's knowledge of the events of Jesus' life, that they knew what had happened and had seen and witnessed them themselves. They don't need a refresher course on the miracles of Jesus, because those present either saw him perform those wonders himself, themselves, or else heard from someone who did all about them. Those miracles were actual events that actually happened. And then Peter speaks of betrayal, crucifixion, and execution. Though it is barely history, it had only happened some 50 days earlier, so it's, it's very recent history, but though it is history, Peter is still speaking of actual events that actually happened, real events that really occurred. This is important to Peter. It's important to all who hear Peter's kerygma message, including us, millennia later. He grounds the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus in history. Real events that really happened. Verifiable history of which they are eyewitnesses to. We are at a disadvantage 2,000 years later. None of us are eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. Not even the oldest among us. I'm not going to point any fingers. None of us witness any of those events. 
But for Peter, those were things that they saw happen. Verifiable history. To be a witness, which in Greek you may remember is literally martyr. The word martyr and the word witness are the same word. To be a witness is the primary evangelical role of all those who follow the Christ. If you believe in him, you bear witness to him. And so if he didn't actually die, or didn't actually rise from the grave, or didn't actually rise up to the throne of glory, then what are we doing here? What's the point? If none of that actually happened, what are we, what are we doing? Peter begins his argument by highlighting the signs and wonders of Jesus of Nazareth being historical events. That is the foundation, that these things really did happen. If you take that out, the whole thing falls apart. They have to have really happened. Not just historical events, the historical events. The single most important cluster of events that human history has ever witnessed. And not only the apostles will attest to it, no matter how baffled the crowd is, they too are witnesses to the power of Jesus' signs and wonders. But there's another witness. Another witness whose word is more credible and more valuable than even the witness of the apostles. And that witness is God himself. God is not like a politician who disowns or discredits or besmirches or belittles a rival politician. That is until that rival politician takes power. Um, just a real quick example. Current Vice President Mike Pence once called the Muslim ban unconstitutional, because it is. That is, until it would cost him a position of power. Now he's all for it. Now he endorses his president in whatever fashion is necessary, which is understandable. All politicians do this. This is not a Trump administration issue. This is a every politician since the beginning of time issue. They say one thing, they, they're, they clash with people, and then once those people get in power, then they grovel. Then they fall in line, fall in step. It's just what happens. But the Father... The Father is not like that. As Peter says, God endorsed Jesus of Nazareth from the very beginning. He didn't waffle. He didn't change his mind. He wasn't wishy-washy about it. Right from the moment he poured his spirit out on Jesus at his baptism and commanded us to listen to him, that's God's stamp of approval. Before Jesus performed any of the signs and wonders and miracles that, that he's talking about here in Acts 2, before any of that happened, God was already a witness endorsing the person of Jesus Christ. The first witness to Jesus' lordship and messiahship was God. And in reality, the Father's endorsement of Jesus of Nazareth goes back much further than just Jesus' baptism. Much further even than Jesus' birth. Look at that important phrase right there in the Kerygma. It's a historical proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, set forth as what? The fulfillment of prophecy. This is interesting, because the idea that God's plan was for Jesus to suffer and die had once been wholeheartedly rejected by Peter. For Peter, and for many Jews, the phrase crucified Christ, and I stole this from a guy named Gordon Fee, I thought this was really great. For Peter, and for many Jews, the phrase crucified Christ was as paradoxical as the phrase fried ice. You can't fry ice, then it's not ice. And you can't crucify a Christ, is the Jewish thinking. A Christ can't be crucified, because then he's not a Christ. Then he's not a political judge and king and savior. If he's crucified, he couldn't be the Christ because the Christ reigns supreme. He died like a criminal, so there's no way he could be the Christ. In fact, Peter had the nerve 
to take Jesus aside in Matthew 16 and say, Heaven forbid, Lord, that that would ever happen to you. To which Jesus famously replied, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, it's so great. Well, what a contrast. Satan is certainly behind now. Because here's the same Peter proclaiming that everything that happened to Jesus was God's good plan. Peter once said, no, that can't be the plan. There's no way that can happen. You are not going to die. But now, in hindsight of all that has happened, Peter can look back on those things and say, no, that was God's plan. And he can proclaim boldly that the, the prophets predicted this. That it, the evidence is right there in Scripture. It's certainly there in Joel. Joel spoke of darkness that happened on the cross. Joel spoke of dreams and visions that's happening to the apostles as we speak. And it's there in those psalms that the Jews had come to understand as messianic psalms. Psalms that anticipate the Messiah and what he will be like. Psalms written by David and often about David that also look forward to the resurrected Savior. Psalms like those quoted here in Acts 2, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 are quoted by Peter in this first Kerygma sermon. And here's where I find Peter's use of the Psalm, Psalm, or Psalm 16. Here's where I find that fascinating. Peter quotes David as saying, God will not allow his Holy One to rot in the grave. The only problem with that, from David's perspective, is that David is rotting in the grave. That's exactly what happened to David. No one could claim that David is speaking about himself because everyone in Israel knows exactly where David was buried. It's just a few meters away from where, from where Peter's giving this sermon. It was just outside or in Jerusalem. His grave was a place that they knew all about. And so when, when David says, God will not allow his holy one to rot in the grave, Peter's making the argument that he's not talking about himself. David's rotting in the grave. They can literally go to his grave and see it. Therefore, Peter argues, when David writes of not being abandoned to the grave in Psalm 16, he's actually talking about the son who would appear through David's lineage and reveal himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. It is Jesus who wasn't abandoned to the grave. Jesus is the Holy One who has avoided the decomposing rot of the dead, not David. In fact, Peter takes it another step further, declaring that David wrote his poetry while experiencing some prophetic vision of the future, that, that David was given a glimpse into the perfect sovereign plans of the Almighty. And in those plans, he saw glory and life born out of suffering and death. And I use the phrase born out of suffering intentionally. See, it was God's plan for Jesus to suffer. This was what caused those ro mental roadblocks for Peter. Mm. Messiah can't suffer. And for most of the Jewish leader, it's what God Jesus condemned in the first place. He can't be the Messiah because he's suffering. But it was also God's plan to, as Peter says in verse 24, loose or release the pangs of death. Not sure what your translation says. I'll read mine. God released him from the horrors of death. That's a really interesting phrase. What we translate as pangs or, or pains. In, in Greek, here's another Greek lesson following up on Dale. The Greek word for pangs here is odin. And that word odin relates to a specific kind of pain. And would anybody like to guess what specific kind of pain it's referring to? Childbirth. Childbirth. You got it, Barbara. Childbirth. The phrase pangs, the Greek word odin, denotes the pain of childbirth. So to all you moms out there, Peter literally equates the pain of, of passing a human through your body with death. 
It says it's equal to death. So just a little justification, a little badge of honor for you women who have had to endure that. And uh, when us men disagree in any way, you can say, just read Acts, because childbirth is hard. It was God's plan for Jesus to release us from death, which is like childbirth. But also like childbirth, there's a beautiful gift of life that results from that pain, thanks to Jesus. A guy named G. Bertram wrote, The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. I'll read that again. The abyss, or the grave, death, can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. I was there as Zoe was being born. I heard Angie's insane pleas while she was in labor. And despite what she begged me to do, I could not simply take the baby away from her. She begged. I don't want it anymore. Take it away. She's listening in the back. She knows it's true, though. She, she begged that the baby not come. She screamed at me, but I couldn't do anything about it. The baby could not be stopped from arriving. And it's the same for Jesus. He could not help but conquer death. The grave could not stop this from happening. That was God's plan for him, and nothing was getting in the way of it. God's plan was for Jesus to suffer, and in that suffering, conquer death. And there is no way that could not happen. The Christ did not conquer as Peter first expected, but he conquered exactly as God had expected since the time David wrote Psalm 16. When Jesus spoke of his death, I'll just leave these up here. You can read them as I speak. These are two instances in Luke where Jesus spoke of his death as coming from the prophets, that the prophets speak of it. So when Jesus spoke of his death being God's plan, he, he refers to the prophets. Peter does as well. For Peter, one of the central elements of the proclamation of Jesus, the kerygma, was that God had planned for all this to happen, that resurrection and exaltation would triumph over the grave, and that God had made this, had ordained this to happen, had planned for this. You can imagine what a tremendous source of hope this would be to them as they themselves became witnesses in the most graphic and true sense possible, martyrs. Witnesses even unto death. So you can imagine what a tremendous hope this was to them. You can imagine that as they were being tied to the stake, or lowered down to the spike, or thrown in with the lions, that they did so trusting in the knowledge that God was still in control. And he had a plan for them, as he did for the Messiah. And that plan, as David declared, leads to resurrection and glory. We are so removed from this. But the early church was right in the heat of it. Their suffering and their persecution for the name of Jesus was intense. And you can imagine that as they suffered, they thought of what their Savior suffered, and they thought of the truth of the fact that in his suffering came exaltation, came glory, came redemption, and that they would cling to that even as their bodies burned or were consumed alive. And so, after quoting the prophecies of King David and then elaborating, Peter concludes his section on the resurrection, that's verses 24 to 32, with this definitive statement. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. There's that word witness coming up again at a key moment. But significantly, Peter doesn't end there. He doesn't end with the resurrection. The triumphant story of Jesus is incomplete if we remain at the empty tomb. 
Because his resurrection led to something. It led to ascension. It led to exaltation. It led to glorification. Because of his faithful life of love, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, God has given Jesus, yes, even humble old Jesus of Nazareth, the name above all other names, and the cosmic position of highest honor, seated at the right hand of God the Father. First, he was raised to life, and then, importantly, he was raised to glory. And here again, Peter uses David's words to illustrate that the king of Israel is speaking of someone greater than just himself. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It crops up in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 3, Hebrews 1, and here in Acts. In the Greek and in the English, the phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, loses some of its significance. It's cumbersome, and it doesn't carry across the meaning of what David was intending. See, in the, the original Hebrew, it, it comes alive. In the original Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Adonai. In other words, Yahweh, which is the name for God, said to my Adonai, which is a term for Lord, ruler. Also, one would be capitalized, the first one, God is the greater, and then Jesus is the lesser, would be capitalized. That's right, yeah. If you look in your translation, what Darcy's saying is that, if you look in, in verse 20, or 34, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is all uppercase. Whenever you see that in scripture, it means it's God alone. It's, a, it's a, just another way to show respect. The other Lord is, is capitalized. It's not a lowercase human Lord. It's still a capital L Lord. But there's a difference. It's not the Lord saying the Lord. It's Yahweh saying the Adonai. There's a difference and a uniqueness to each character. Peter interprets David's writing as a message from Yahweh to Jesus, who is David's Lord. Who else would be Lord to a king except a divine figure? David is, David is king of Israel. He is at the height of power among God's people. And he still says, there is a Lord to him, someone above him. And it's not Yahweh, because he says Yahweh first, and now there's this Adonai figure, someone else who is David's Lord. He is a king to the king. And God's message to this Adonai, this Lord figure, is one of glory and power and justice. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. He's not talking about David. I mean, the, the Jews at the time, they would sing that and wish that for David, that all the enemies around Israel would be conquered and they would be like footstools to David's feet. But David doesn't write it about David. David writes it about this Adonai figure. Jesus was condemned and crucified for stating in the Gospel of Luke that the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He says that during his trial, and that's what makes all... The, the temple council lose their mind and say, we don't need to hear anymore. You heard what he said. Crucify him, kill him, blasphemy. Because Jesus said that the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Well, that's what got him condemned. But God has other plans. From that condemnation came completion. Humans played a role, to be sure. Humans played a role, as Peter's kerygma message makes clear. All of humanity played a role in Jesus' death and execution. Not just those listening to Peter's sermon, although many of them were probably at the crucifixion proceedings. Many of them may even have been shouting, crucify him. And not just those Jewish leaders who accused Jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to the Romans. The blood guilt for Jesus 
runs much deeper than just the Jewish leaders or the crowds at the time. All of humanity is to blame. And yet, God still has a plan. The very words that led to Jesus' death become Jesus' reward upon his return to life. This Adonai, who David speaks of, who will have this position of glory, seated at the right hand of God, with all of his enemies like a footstool, this Adonai is Jesus. And his reward is right there in Psalm 110. So Jesus has been exalted. He's been lifted up in praise to claim the dignified position only a true servant of God can claim. And from that position of, gl of glory, God gives him two tasks. These are the two jobs for Adonai in Acts 2. One, wait for the complete destruction of your enemies, which may or may not be the final conquering of death following the parousia, which is Jesus' return. Most likely, this is not a political enemy or a human enemy of any kind. Paul makes it clear that that's not who we are battling against. We need to stop seeing enemy as a human-to-human -human thing. So what enemies will Jesus conquer? What, what enemies does Jesus need to wait until they are fully defeated? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think maybe death, the grave. Even though Jesus conquered it, it's not fully conquered. We will all still die. But a time is coming in the Perusia when Jesus returns and death will be finally, fully, completely conquered and will be like a footstool under his feet. There is likely an element of judgment here on people who, who don't treat Jesus as Lord and Messiah. They may also be part of this footstool imagery. I don't know. I don't know for sure. But the first job of Adonai is to wait for the complete destruction of the enemies. The second, so that's a passive role. The second is an active role. The other role of Adonai is to pour out their shared spirit on, the, on his followers. Two tasks worthy of a king and a savior. Wait for your enemies to be defeated and pour out your spirit. Jobs worthy of a king and a savior. Or in other words, tasks worthy of a Lord and a Messiah. And it's on those titles, Lord and Messiah, that Peter wraps up his excellent sermon. When he says in verse 36, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Having given all the evidence from eyewitness reports and from God's endorsement and from the words of Scripture, Peter now rests his case. Like a good lawyer, I rest my case. Because of all this, God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. This is the point of the signs and the wonders. This is the message of his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. This is the reason we offer our lives to him. Because Jesus alone is Lord and Messiah. You will note astutely that this is the second aspect of the Krigma. The first is the history of his life, death, etc., etc., that it was all God's plan through the prophets and that humans played a part. That's, that's part one. We've now moved into part two. And if you're worried, part two is very quick. It's one verse. Peter, Peter deals with all of part two, the theology of Jesus being Lord and Christ, in one verse. Lord is a title used indistinguishably, which, and by the way, this is pretty enormous, especially for Jewish thinkers. But this title of Lord is one that's used indistinguishably between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Both are called Lord in the same way, in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. 
Both are referenced to his Lord. And that's a little factoid that actually contributed to the persecution and death of many a Christian community. It's why Paul, sorry, Saul, goes after the church so fervently. Because they're proclaiming this man, Jesus, who was crucified, they're saying he's equal with God. That's, that's what sent him on his trek to crush the church. And so to call Jesus Lord was to equate him with God, which was a no-no to the Jews. But to proclaim Jesus as Lord is to stand against the common Roman declaration of the day, which is Caesar is Lord. You're taking out Caesar and putting in this man Jesus, which was a no-no to the Romans. So Peter doesn't end on a light, fluffy note. He ends on a call to spiritual arms. He ends with a rallying cry. He ends with a command to choose whom you will serve. If Jesus is Lord and Messiah, that means he's equal to God, which if you say that, it's going to get you in trouble. And if Jesus is Lord and Messiah, that means Caesar is not Lord and Messiah, even though he's the one who's reigning supreme at the moment and Jesus was crushed like a slave. In the end, it's Jesus who will reign supreme overall, and it's Caesar who will go down to the grave. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And both of these statements from, from every angle got Christians in trouble over and over. If he is Lord, he is on par with God the Father, and he is supreme, ridiculously supreme, overwhelmingly supreme over little old Caesar. And if he is Lord, then all creation is subservient to him. And he rules supreme at the right hand of the Father, right hand of the Father, dealing out justice and grace, pouring out his presence on all who seek to follow him. To be Lord is to have power, but it goes hand in hand with his other title, Messiah, Savior, Christ. This title, the title of Messiah, points to hope and redemption and deliverance. He is Lord, he is powerful, but he is also Messiah. He uses that power to save. Our Lord uses his power to save, not on a nation-to-nation -nation scale, and that cannot be emphasized enough. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. After Jesus, there never had been, and there never will be. It's not about nation-to-nation -nation as it was in the Old Testament. Rather, because the Spirit is poured out, it is now person-to-person. -person. It is on your heart and our heart, and together we form a new kingdom. He saves person-to-person, -person, which, incidentally, is a much larger scale than just nation to nation. If he's dealing with person to person, on every person on the, in the scope of human history, that's a much larger scale than just a country. So there you have it. That's how Peter ends with the call to arms. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Now way back at the beginning, the thing that kicks off this whole sermon, not just my sermon, but Peter's whole sermon, is that the apostles were challenged with a question. What does this all mean? What do the signs and wonders of the end days point to? And here we have Peter's answer. Jesus, well, it's, it's a many-part answer. So first of all, Jesus was historically real. The Father endorsed him from the beginning, even from as far back as King David's Psalms. And those Psalms pointed to one who conquers the grave and reigns supreme over both his friends, like King David, and his enemies, like death itself. And because God planned it, and because the prophets predicted it, and because the apostles witnessed it, and because Jesus lived, died, rose again, and was glorified, we come to the one thing that will pro propel millions of followers to take up their crosses and live lives of sacrifice, compassion, evangelism, and love. And that one thing was the truth that God has made this Jesus 
whom you and I crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Amen to that. Next week we wrap up Peter's sermon, and it's a crucial part to all this. If Jesus is Lord and Messiah, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? And although you know the answer, I'm sure you you know what it means, stay tuned for next week's action-packed conclusion to the sermon of Peter. Let's pray. God, you are exalted uh, high above all of us. We know that you are worthy of all our praise. We know that the signs and wonders of Scripture point to you being Lord, Adonai, King, and also Messiah, Savior, Christ. We know both of those roles are true only of you, and that you've got the position that you rightfully deserve, right at your Father's right hand. Thank you that as you were glorified, one day we will be glorified. And we cling to that hope, and we cling to you, Jesus. Thank you for pouring your Spirit out on us, and we praise you. And pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.